It's Distazapod, number 292. We got some excellent questions coming up. Before we hop into that, I want to recommend a Patreon that I have really spent a lot of time with in the past couple weeks, and I feel like it is very much worthwhile, and the creator is saying a lot of things that uh, have really crystallized the present moment in the world for me, and I think it will be helpful for you guys, especially if you are a creative type, which I know a disproportionate amount of our audience are. Uh, I think you're going to glean a lot from what this creator is saying. Uh, his name is Brad Trammell, and you can check him out at patreon.com slash B-S-T. Brad is an artist with many disciplines, um, but I think the most notable thing about him is you've been exposed to his work and not known it. Uh, now, if you were like me and you were big on Tumblr back in the day, you probably saw a lot of his installation art photographs. Um, but I'll let you guys sort of discover his body of work because I think that's part of the fun. More recently, he's been responsible for several viral memes and images that have essentially uh, floated around the internet, especially during the election time. Um, a lot of things that you saw that you kind of questioned, is this real? Could this possibly be real? Uh, Brad was actually the creator of. So a very subversive artist. Uh, I'm really enjoying the content that he's put out there. Of particular note is his critique of the art world and galleries and art school and essentially uh, his diagnosis that it is a pyramid scheme. And I think this has made him a bit of a pariah in the proper art world. Uh, he did do a talk at Cornell and has not been invited since with the uh, sort of knowledge that he dropped at that, that talk, which is available also on his Patreon. So. If you're somebody who has any creative inklings at all, uh, you are struggling with how to get an audience or how to make art or how to connect with people, or you're sort of suffering under the delusion of fame and grandeur in this current world, uh, Brad is a great guy to listen to. He has some wonderful video essays and they're all sort of front and center on his Patreon. You can go down the list and watch each of them. I find it tremendously educational and uh, entertaining. There's also a really great piece he did on Funko Pops and their significance in the greater culture. And uh, I thought he perfectly distilled that phenomenon. Uh, so if you guys are looking to continue to support independent artists and the content they create, you can check out his Patreon, patreon.com slash BST. And uh, I think you're going to find it is an enlightening experience the same way I did. So go check that out. Now to kick off our little session, our q and I'm going to go to the Facebook group, uh, which you guys, I mean, just go and look up Nice of the Slice on Facebook if you want to join. Uh, this comes from Tim Wilkins. Do you think 3D printing, where people purchase their toys online and print them at home, will ever become sophisticated enough that it replaces overseas production and physical retail space? Or will companies relinquish control of the physical quality and safety standards be too much of a risk to be entrusted to the average consumer? Um, so there's a lot of different things here that I want to pick apart because I think this is a great question. Um, first of all, I think this relies on the idea that progress is endless and we're always moving upward, right? And for me, mentally, that's in contention. Um, 
Now, look, we all grew up in a time of abundance where technology kept compounding and getting better and better and our lives appreciated. But we have to think that the long stretch of humanity and us existing is not progress in an upwards direction. In fact, there are centuries where things are very dark and progress is not made. Just 100 years ago, which is not that long in the grand scheme of things, uh, there was the Great Depression, right? And that was a very bad time of very little progress. Now, uh, thankfully, that dark age didn't last very long, but it did seize everything in place. Now, I see a lot of precarity the same way historically there was a lot of precarity leading up to that crash and that depression. And I think, unfortunately, things have to get a bit worse before they start to get better. And one of the prime things that's going to get beaten up more is the supply chain. I think in this modern era, we've sort of sat back and just assumed technology will continue to get better and better and goods will get cheaper and cheaper and be more available. Uh, we certainly take that for granted with when it comes to things like smartphones. Uh, but I do think that there are more disruptions that are going to happen. And I do think that largely 3D printing in particular, its ability to scale and become more user-friendly, become more affordable, and become something that anyone can do in their own home, that depends on... That's a concept that is sort of like pre-pandemic thinking, right? If you'd asked me in 2019 if I thought that was possible, I would say, oh, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. No question. It, you know, we will be printing our own toys and, you know, uh, toy companies are going to switch over to digital goods instead of, um, you know, just manufacturing physical products. Now, as we're starting to come out of the biggest point of infection with the disease, but realizing that very little has been done to mitigate suffering in a bigger way, very little has changed, um, sort of puts my perspective in question about this endless uh, improvement in technology and the, the sort of endless acceleration of all these things. So that's the first thing I would say. I would say I, you know, in my current mind frame, I see some unsustainability and I see additional bumps in the road coming that would normally make me say, hey, yes, it's just a matter of time. We just got to wait out until this technology sort of smooths itself out. The second part is I, I don't see overseas manufacturing being replaced. Um, China's entire economy and, and therefore much of the world's economy depends on their ability to continue manufacturing cheap plastic goods and goods of all kind. So even if, say, a sort of small sliver of manufacturing, uh, let's say adult action figure collectibles, is sort of able to come domestically or into our individual homes in a sort of hobbyist style, um, there's still going to be manufacturing that's happening. The, you know, the our entire world order is sort of propped up on that, right? That is the foundation of this global enterprise that we take for granted. The other thing is, who's going to manufacture the machines that manufacture the action figures we make at home, right? That's not going to change. That's still going to have to come from uh, developing in third world nations. 
maybe India starts to overtake a good portion of China's market share in terms of manufacturing, uh, maybe it's other places like Vietnam, who's to say? But post-World War II, we propped up this entire idea, this facade, on cheap goods being manufactured in other countries. So I don't see that changing. When it comes to retail stores, I think that trend is largely going to be the trend we're seeing in almost every other sector, a stratification. This is something that Brad Trammell talks a lot about. Uh, Stratification is essentially the bigger players in a space buying out the mid-tier players in a space And then you're only left with these big conglomerates and then tiny independent operations. Now we've seen that happen in the action figure industry. It's actually been happening since I entered the industry uh, 20 years ago, I believe. Um, There has been a stratification. The companies that are mid-sized, like Palisades is a good example, Gentle Giant, uh, Art Asylum, these have all been gobbled up by bigger companies and we're left with very few in the middle only you know these top tier enormous big boys and then guys like me sort of fighting to stay afloat by themselves so retail space is always going to exist but likely it's going to be target and walmart and then maybe mom and pop stores uh, at the end but mom and pop stores are kind of going to come and go very quickly now in my neck of the woods Um, there were, when I sort of matriculated out of the city five years ago, there were three small comic book stores within, uh, you know, a short drive in the, in the two nearby towns. Uh, there is currently one of them left and they've converted almost their entire store into selling knickknacks and soaps and it's become more of a general store. They've moved away completely from comics and and toys, uh, with the exception of a small sort of alcove, and they stopped doing um, sort of weekly or monthly comics, which I now have no place to go within 30 miles where I can just see what new comics have come out, right? And that is something I've never had in my life. I've always had like a little place nearby, however meek, that I could go and just see what is Diamond Ship this week? Just out of curiosity. Maybe I pick up one, take a look, see how things are going. I don't have that experience anymore. It's been completely uh, wiped off the board. Now to the third part of the question regarding quality control and safety standards. You know, I, I don't know if that's the liability of anybody but the end consumer. Right? Like, um, I don't think that any of the 3D printers we currently have there's any liability on those manufacturers, assuming they ha- there's no defect in their units, uh, they have no end liability to what the consumer may do or how they may misuse this technology. So I would venture to guess if Hasbro puts up a digital file of a printable Spider-Man figure, it's largely up to the end consumer to ensure they're executing this design or this 3D file uh, safely and with the correct materials. I, I'm, I, you know, it's it's kind of a murky area where I'm not sure there's a compelling argument that these companies should be responsible for safety and quality control, nor could it be enforced. Like that seems, you know, it, like it might be a bridge too far. Of course, we have some great 
legal minds uh, amongst our followers. So uh, feel free to weigh in if you think I got that wrong. So to recap everything, um, I would say at, at a certain point, likely, assuming there's no enormous disruptions, which as of today, I'm kind of feeling there will be quite a few more. Uh, yes, I, I think we will have some level of this print at home and play idea. I think it's going to take a lot of time. Um, you know, and I, I don't see much happening with retail except additional stratification. And the quality control question, you know, I, I think largely like a hobbyist, you're going to be on your own with what you do with these materials, including misusing them. But a great question and definitely something I think about all the time. Next up, we are hopping over to the Patreon for some good questions there. First up is our buddy, Jerry Bow. We've now seen the work on hologram effects. Uh, ever given thought to using lenticular effects as well? I know I read that very oddly, like a William Shatner line read, but uh, any case, Jerry's asking, now that I've experimented with holograms and integrating those into the toys, lenticular, what do we think? So for those who don't know lenticular, are those little rigid cards that uh, you would tilt and there would, it would have the illusion of action. There would be normally uh, two to three to four different images sliced up. And when you tilt the card, due to those ridges and the plastic, uh, it would give the illusion of it being alive. Um, so I have actually sourced lenticular in the past. It is very expensive. It is a less time-consuming sort of process as holograms, which I've now learned. Uh, but the minimums are very high on lenticular. And they really want to do, the studios that do that, they really want to do like very simple postcards or maybe a trading card. Um, I had this quoted quite a few years ago and it was like a minimum order of 500 pieces or something, uh, you know, above what I thought could move. And if we're talking specifically about integrating a lenticular gimmick into an action figure, we're dealing with a tiny, tiny piece of real estate. Um, you know, when people get these holograms in hand, I think one, they're going to see why I didn't make this a big release because the effect doesn't quite work. And two, they're probably going to see how incredibly tiny these holograms are and the adjusted chest plate for the hypervise and things like that. It's, we're dealing with fractions of an inch, really. So um, I don't think lenticular is going to be a silver bullet with this current, you know, uh, type of experimentation that I'm doing. Uh, I, I think also lenticular works largely because of the size, like the more real estate you have, the little bit better an effect is. You know, if you look at like the Secret Wars shields, um, it's kind of fun, but it's not necessarily a very impressive uh, effect compared to something much bigger. Like I I'm thinking back when I worked at New Line Cinema, we did the uh, Vegas licensing show. We had a floor to ceiling lenticular poster for Journey to the Earth 3D. 
So this was probably like eight feet tall and it was enormous. And it actually worked really well. You would kind of walk by and the wall would appear to be shimmering and move as you sort of adjusted your position around it. So um, that's another thing that I think, you know, uh, is a consideration when we're talking lenticular technology. Next up, Brett Barnacle, what would you like to see added to the Joy Toy 40K line? I'm personally very excited for the Krieg this fall. Well, I think they've done a wonderful job. Uh, I own quite a few. I, I've sort of bought heavily on their first release and I'm in a good place now. So I'm just gonna really wait and pick and choose figures that I really like moving forward. Um, you know I gotta have my Katachan jungle fighters, right? If I have one pick, that's it. I've always been ensorcelled by that division. For those who are not familiar with Warhammer and the Katachan, if I'm saying that right, uh, jungle fighters, it's essentially an entire army that look like the guys from Contra. <laughs> you know, it's, it's clearly stolen from everything that is 80s and military, all the action movies, you know, Commando, Predator, all these things. They have an entire army that is just like that look. And um, I always thought they were really, really cool. So I would be, it would be very hard for me to avoid buying those if they did indeed make them. Next question from Quickening Heroes. What skills slash power does Chameleon Live have? Chameleon Lime have? Does he still have micros abilities? Uh, can he blend in like a chameleon? I'm asking for the card slicers. I mean, for photo shoot. Um, so I, I like this idea. I think he probably has both, right? Like the micros or micros. Um, they are essentially living computers and they're backup copies of humans in our dimension. So he has all that knowledge. Uh, and then also he did integrate himself with a sort of organic chameleon type creature in order to survive. So maybe that's why he's currently depicted in transparent green, right? Like he can affect the transparency of his body. I think that's a uh, pretty solid idea. We're going further into hologram territory with a question from Melissa Saylor. Would you, uh, sorry, what would it take for you to create more hologram parts? Uh, also, let's add into the mold here, Matthew Connolly. So the new hyper chest plate that you are adding the hologram film to, will that ever make it to the store as an added part for those who Frankenslice without the hologram? Everybody's got holograms on the mind. So, um, okay, let's back up because maybe there's some new listeners here. I've, since I started messing with independent toys over a decade ago, I've been trying to get holograms integrated into action figures. And not just holograms, which nowadays means a foil sticker, things like that, like a proper hologram shot with lasers, giving you true three-dimensional effect. Uh, I worked with a very talented artist who you guys can follow on Patreon, Laser Boy Hollow. Uh, I brought him this project. I, I did some crude diagrams of how I pictured it, and he went off to experiment. Um, the experiment does not really work. And uh, I, what was going to be a big wide release ended up being just a, a small batch of prototypes that I offered up to patrons and they were able to get their hands on. I had to sell them at a loss, uh, even as pricey as they were, just to kind of try and recoup some of the material spend 
uh, for this project that ultimately did not kind of shape up the way I wanted it to. So uh, last week I offered a lucky draw for these hologram figures, meaning people would email me with a request to buy. I chose, I think it was 15 names at random, and then those people were allowed to purchase. Those have all gone out. Uh, hopefully they're arriving. Um, you know, I think as people get their hands on these and they, they there's photos shared, you're going to see the effect is not quite there, which I made abundantly clear, you know, prior to putting these on sale. This is, in some respects, a failed project, but uh, I thought it was interesting enough that people may want to have some of these artifacts just for their collection. Now, what would it take for me to sort of keep up on this, you know, be a hound dog on the trail and just never give up until we have something that's truly as I envision it in my mind? You know, I don't know. I, maybe now is not the time to be doing it. Um, I don't consider this to be a closed and shut experiment that I will never tinker with again, but I would say pretty costly, uh, pretty expensive, and did not end up the way I wanted it to be, uh, which is not a not great to do when cash flow is tight and I'm placing large orders for things like Diver. The other point is, um, while I got a, a fair response to the lucky draw option, I did not get an overwhelming response to the lucky draw option. And look, part of that is price, like it's an extremely expensive experimental figure, but still, the reaction is something that I use to gauge the feasibility of these projects in the future. Um, I got maybe a third of what I th think would be a compelling amount of people reaching out asking for these figures. So I guess to succinctly answer the question, what would it take for me to make more hologram parts? Uh, I think I just need more time to think about it. And I need... Um, I don't know what the critical failures are here that I can alleviate the next experimentation to get exactly what I'm picturing in my mind. So I think I probably just need time to process. Uh, regarding Matthew Connolly, new hyper, hyper chest plate, um, will I ever make it to the store? Again, it's like, you know, this is not a perfect project to me. So the wider distribution of these materials you know, I'm a little gun shy about. I like to put my best foot forward and make the best product I can and have that be what people see and experience, especially new people coming onto the scene. So um, I don't know how likely it is these will be available in the future or as part of Frankenslices. Um, maybe I will experiment with, you know, small stickers in the place of holograms. Uh, that could be a possibility. I also, I've had one or two people request the 3D file for the hyper chest plate. Um, I don't know if I'm going to make that available. I will take it into consideration. Again, 3D files, I have at most five people that download them and, and actually use them. So um, I like doing them. I think it's an interesting part of the business. But at the end of the day, it is a very tiny fraction of the overall audience that actually utilize these things. And, um, you know, it does take some amount of time to put them together. So I, I'd rather focus my time on things that the majority of people will sort of enjoy. Next up for me and Amling, how likely is it we will have a crossover with O'Neill Design and Diver the way we did with Star Marshal, Cyber Mama, Old Knight, and Vector Jump Armor Classic Knight? 
Um, I mean, that's really up to Matt Dowdy, and uh, he can feel free to operate any of my figures and tools and do whatever combination he wants. But I think largely he's going to focus on his own stuff. Um, you know, I'd like to see it, but I don't think it's a huge priority for either of us, uh, especially prior to Diver launching. It's kind of a very critical time. We got to get this first order right and uh, get him out the door. So I wouldn't hold my breath, but um, it would be nice to see. Next up from Keith Joy, I've been getting back into No Man's Sky recently, along with enjoying the Lightyear toys. So I have a space traversal on the brain. What is your favorite kind of spaceship? Are you more into starfighters or similar single pilot crafts? Or are you more about flying, fighting apartment complexes? I'm guessing you're referencing something like the SDF-1. Um, so I've always loved the A-Wing from Star Wars Return of the Jedi. I think largely because I had a model kit of it when I was a kid, and it just seems like such a fun size and shape. Um, I think I tend to like spaceships that are light speed capable, but largely one person crafts. You know, something like an A-Wing where maybe there's a little bit of a living quarters, even if it's just like a, you know, not unlike a Japanese capsule hotel or something like that. Like, I don't like the idea of a pilot having to sleep in his cockpit. I like having, like if, uh, you know, on YouTube you can watch videos about where crew and pilots sleep on commercial airlines. And it's really fascinating because we never sort of see those places, but they are tiny little dormitories on these, uh, these big crafts. So I think I kind of uh, picture something like that. Uh, not quite as big as the Razor Crest, let's say. You know, I think, um, that's kind of like a moving apartment in some respects. But I, I do like the idea of being able to get out of the cockpit ever so slightly and just have a, you know, a different sort of uh, space around you. Continuing on with Patreon questions, Gavin Rader have we seen all of the first wave of Verkill, or are there still more to be revealed this year? And we give any hints. Um, you have not seen all of Verkill Wave 1. Uh, the remaining Verkills are material style, although they may appear in a material plus sort of uh, combination. Uh, there will not be any fully painted Verkill until probably end of this year, early next year. Um, I have strategically decided that I need to focus on Diver and maximizing that order as opposed to fine-tuning and going in with many, many spray masks in order to bring Verkill to full life. So, uh, unfortunately, that's going to have to wait a little bit, but in the meantime, you're going to get Diver and it's going to be extra fantastic. So, I think that's a good trade-off. Next up, we got Brent Lawson. With simultaneously the best and worst question I've ever gotten. <laughs> How about a design and Frankenslice? This could be legendary. The brackets would be epic. Just trying to choose an arm type or a leg type alone. Wow. Colors would be random. You put limits on picks based on extra inventory. This could be insane. You are correct. This is insane. Um, to do a design and night tournament is a lot of work on my end. And it's a lot of work that you guys don't see. And, and that really is in strategic planning of the brackets and which styles are gonna face off against each other. 
and what the contingencies and eventualities are for every single possible outcome. And we have, what is it, 14 figures now? So that alone is a huge amount of sort of coordination work that I have to do before we can launch a Design a Night tournament. If you factored in something as insane as Frankenslice, which essentially would be every single component of a figure could be interchangeable, um, it becomes that much more compounding in complexity and also impossibility, right? Because I don't want to do that work. Um, it is a, it's a wonderful idea. It's a great thought exercise. Logistically, it would be next to impossible to pull off, especially considering, so if we have, let's say we have 15 pieces in a Frankenslice figure, and we have 14 different figures, so 14 times 15 gives you a very baseline amount of possible combinations, but you then have to multiply by itself, and you start to see this is a, <laughs> a very daunting uh, possible amount of combinations that could happen. And going and then placing an order where you only need one piece out of 14 different figures, um, extremely expensive, extremely problematic. I like the spirit of the question. It's a fun exercise. I don't see any possible way to make that happen, unfortunately. Now I'm heading over to Discord for some questions there. For those people who don't know what Discord is, uh, it is a what I like to call a deep forest community. And that's not my phrasing. I think Josh Citronella came up with that. Um, but it is essentially a message board that has a paywall around it. And the price to enter that is to become a patron on patreon.com slash You get a link and then you can join this secret message board. And I love this community because a lot of really intense trades go on there. A lot of people help other people out with styles they may have missed. A lot of people sharing their artwork and the songs that they write. Uh, it's a wonderful community. It is paywalled because we like keeping the trolls out and everybody's very pure in there. And I, I greatly value this community. And in any case, I definitely recommend you join us there. So there is a questions for Pod channel on our secret discord. And the first one comes from C04. Uh, I know you've mentioned making a figure of your D&D character. Any updates on him? Here is mine, a grung monk who thinks he is human and a wizard named Elminster. And he shares these wonderful photos you can see on the Discord. Um, uh, so I have a lot of different D&D characters. I, I did put together uh, Sparhawk, who is a more recent D&D creation from a game that is currently on hiatus as me and all my friends kind of decided we want to like be outside and, uh, you know, go have fun. And also, one of us is getting married, so. Um, so, uh, to create a Sparhawk, you basically just take the uh, Alexander um, Classic Knight, this sort of wrestling-style version of him, throw on any of the crow heads, and then a little tethered cape, and you're good. You got the fighting monk known as Sparhawk. I do have some earlier D&D characters, which I would like to bring into toy form at some point, but those would be unique sculpts, and honestly, who knows when I will get to them. But uh, it's definitely, you know, D&D is a great inspiration for toy making and character creation and storytelling in general, so I'm a, I'm a big fan. Next up, Matt Bennett, can, Matt Bennett, not Bennett, uh, can you describe the paint technique that was used to create chaos slash death? There's uh, technically two slashes in between that, but I will forgive you. 
Um, it is relatively simple. It is a spray mask that covers one side of the figure, and then they just kind of they blast it with a a uh, you know paint thrower. <laughs> That's the word, a paint thrower, and uh, it gets that cool effect. Now, I wasn't actually able to visit the factory when that was made, but the line is very crisp separating the two halves. For those who don't know, this is a figure that is painted black on one side and then clear pink on the other side. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they ran a tampo print along the edge of it because it looks really, really precise. But I suppose you could also get that from a very tight-fitting spray mask used by professionals. So um, I don't have the benefit of actually having seen the process myself, uh, but that is... Um, you know, they, they were able to recreate it just from a flat 2D drawing I did, which is really speaks to the caliber of talent in their team. Uh, because typically for something that complex, you want to sort of send a paint master. Uh, we were not able to, and they, they really made it work just based off my art, which uh, is very impressive. Next question from Thomas Bucci. Uh, he's asking about a Death Knight. He would like to see point... 2.0 versions of Death Knight and the original Brick, Lime, and Teal Knights. Uh, would I consider doing that for newcomers? Um, I don't think so. And here's why. Um, this is a luxury collectible line, whether or not we sort of think of it in that way. But this is a this is not a necessary purchase for anybody. These are relatively expensive figures, and they're relatively low run. In fact, I would say these are probably some of the lowest run figures ever made in the history of plastics manufacturing. Um, so, while my purpose of this line and my focus is not on collectors and speculators, that is a portion of this audience. And some of us, I mean most of us customers, are a sort of hybrid of that, right? Not all of us are just collecting these just to do builds. Not all of us are collecting these just to keep in the package and hope they appreciate in value. Not all of us are completists. We're kind of all a mixture of those things. And I've had some really remarkable stories of people who backed the first Kickstarter, were saving up to buy a house, reached out and said, you know, I want to sell my Purple Knight. I want to sell uh, the first trio. Are you okay with that? Do I have your blessing? And of course, I'm always happy for people to do that and help contribute to, uh, you know, a bigger dream that they have. So... You know, while it's not forefront in my mind, protecting people's value of this line is somewhat important. And I don't want to dilute the market by sort of reissuing uh, the previous figures. But that is sort of secondary tertiary to the main concern, which is I have a limited number of slots in which I can run a certain style of figure. So let's say every time I place an order, I got about 12 slots, 12 different styles of figures that I can produce within the allotted time that I will book with the factory and within the budget that I have. So to take away three or four slots um, to reissue older figures that a good portion of our audience may have, you know, earlier adapters certainly do, uh, that's not a good business decision for me at this point because I have a finite amount of styles I can do. There are certain characters I need to get done to meet certain sales dates or debuts or tie-ins or stories. And so there are a lot of sort of external pressure 
that guide me in deciding what I want to do and largely makes me gun shy to rerun old things over again. Um, Speaking of our last question with Matt Bennett and the chaos death, I think that's a good example of letting people sort of scratch the itch if they missed out on the original death or the chaos king, but with something different and new that is interesting and pushes the story forward. And, you know, I think something like uh, chaos death is a better idea to me and, and something I'm more likely to do than just kind of repeat the same styles. The final point I'll make is that the story has moved so very far away from Brian, from uh, <laughs> Brick, Lime, and Teal at this point that uh, one of them is dead, one of them is missing, and one of them is retired. So they are not sort of key crucial characters and they are not what uh, visibility newcomers may have on the brand. If they sign on to the website now, they're gonna learn about Harley and Marley, Maybe they go back and get the Pangea Island books. Um, You know, the story is very, very far away from that initial window in that we began with. And, you know, there is a certain school of thought that you want to, you want to sort of keep people engaged with the current stuff uh, and keep things moving forward. Now, with all that being said, I could see a sort of anniversary collection or something like that when we get to maybe the 10-year mark or the 15-year mark. Uh, you know, when we, we have a little bit uh, more time under our belts, then I think it's it can be interesting to kind of revisit these ideas and, uh, you know, almost do a sort of restart in some respects. But we got some time before that happens, so I'm not in any hurry. Uh, and uh, thank you for the question. Final question of the week comes from our friend Sam Sherry. What is, in your opinion, the funniest legal squabble over media? One of Sam's is uh, Glenn Danzig and Jerry Only's war over the misfits. Um, One of the most compelling cases, I think, when it comes to things like copyright infringement and multimedia law, uh, I learned about in a class in college, and it is George Harrison and the My Sweet Lord plagiarism. A lawsuit he ultimately lost. Uh, so a little bit of background information. You guys can probably watch a YouTube video on this and it'll be much more concise. And it is a really fascinating case. Um, but essentially, he was sued for plagiarizing the Chiffon song, He's So Fine, uh, with his song, My Sweet Lord. And George's defense essentially was, I'm in the Beatles, I, <laughs> we are the biggest band in the world, There's no reason for me to plagiarize an old song. If I did, it was subconscious. Uh, Listen to these songs back to back because it is really, really convincing. He obviously sort of, uh, you know, was influenced unconsciously. He just sort of, this melody is very enchanting and it worked its way into his song, My Sweet Lord, which by the way, probably one of the top 10 songs ever written. Uh, If you guys, for some reason, don't know that song, Put it on, put it on with headphones, and truly a, a beautiful, beautiful song. One of my all-time favorites, without a question. So it's a very fascinating case. I'm not going to sort of spoil everything that happens here. Uh, he did lose, but the conditions under which he lost and 
the recompense is really quite fascinating. Uh, there was a lot of sort of background players and things like that with this case, but um, very entertaining. I highly recommend you check it out. Um, that, it, it, you know, is, is just one of those cases that always sort of stuck with me over uh, all these years. And with that, I think we are done with questions for this week. Um, July 16th, Toy Pizza Con live at Happy Valley in Beacon, New York. This is a bar arcade one of my favorite venues in the world. We're coming back. We're coming live. It's going to be tremendous. There is a large outdoor area. If uh, you're still feeling squeamish, I, of course, encourage masks. I, of course, encourage uh, bringing your vaccine card. We're going to have the Wheel of Nights live. There's going to be a performance by Zed Star 7. We have Dan from Toy Galaxy there. We have Matt Dowdy from Glios and probably a couple Glios players coming. We have This Toy Life live. There's going to be some kind of presence from our friends at Plunderlings. It is going to be a ton of fun. It's it's truly where my life force is focusing right now. We're going to have exclusives. Uh, even if you can't make it in person, there's going to be plenty of streaming going on, and you will have advanced pre-order possibilities for the Toy Pizza Con exclusives bundle. And on that note, I want to queue up a potentially controversial question for you guys. I really need some feedback here. So uh, I may have the opportunity to have a very early version of Diver at Toy PizzaCon, but this would be shipping out before pre-orders from the campaign and also would not be sort of included with anything that you pre-ordered in the campaign. The reason being, I can sort of rush out very quickly, essentially a, a test shot that is, you know, large enough in quantity to cover what our attendance and what our online traffic would be for Toy PizzaCon. But it will take more time to get the full order, which includes everything I need to fulfill all of the campaign promises. So I want to sort of cue this up and get people's feedback. Do you think it's a betr uh, betrayal as a campaign backer to sneak out this very early sample that people can get their hands on, and I will make available, obviously, to everybody who backed the campaign. Or, uh, are you cool with it? Is it is it interesting to sort of be able to see this thing early, and it's a chance worth taking? So give me guys, give me your guys's feedback. Uh, leave a comment wherever you're listening to this. I would love to know if you think that's something worth trying to pull off, or if uh, you're going to be deeply offended and clutch your pearls and need to sit on your fainting couch and have some smelling salts. So you guys let me know. I got to figure out if I want to try and uh, squeak this thing out just in time for Toy Pizza Con. Uh, whether or not Diver will be there, we're going to be unveiling some very big projects at the show. And, um, you know, we have a tradition once a year when we do to Toy Pizza Con, we kind of show you everything we're working on. And we got some big ones this year. Let me tell you, there are some huge, huge things that uh, we're very much looking forward to unveiling. So tune in or come in person if you're able. And uh, it's going to be a hell of a time. So keep your calendar locked in. July 16th, we're going to be at Happy Valley in Beacon, New York for Toy Pizza Con Live. And with that, I leave you to go about your day eats out.
Christmas, 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 Christmas,